0: It is uh, with some trembling and humility that I preach tonight. Um, I guess always that's true, uh, but it's particularly true tonight, and uh, you'll come to understand as I get into the text. Um, I guess I just want to exhort you to hear God tonight and hear what God says in His Word Um, Because really, at the end of the day, as we talked about last week, it doesn't really matter what I think. It doesn't really matter what you think. All that matters is what God says. Amen? At the end of the day, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what one denomination says over another. All that ultimately will matter is what has God told us here And so that's what we're going to look at, uh, as we always do, but we're going to look at a hard subject tonight. Um, and uh, so I think I want to exhort you to be hearing God and to be in awe. I know we always are in awe when we come in here. I hope. But if we're hearing The upshot of the message tonight, we will be in awe of this God. So, one year ago today, uh, (laughs) I was joyfully preaching through 2 Peter. And uh, preaching is a joy for me. Every Sunday night, I write the same thing in my journal. It was a great service. I can't believe I get to do this. I can't believe this is my job. I can't believe God lets me preach His Word. I can't believe He sends me money to do this. I can't believe it! I write it in my journal every Sunday night. You know, whatever your ministry is with God, don't ever lose the surprise of it. Don't ever lose the joy of it. But I love this job. And it made me think of Kari Joby's song, I think Jamie Lee Riddle wrote the song. You guys know it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything and I will adore You. And then she sings that perfect line that resonates and reverberates and echoes in every born again heart and soul she sings I am filled with wonder awestruck wonder at the mention of your name amen I love that line it uh, it may be the best line anyone's ever written for a Christian song I get that don't you get that when you look at Jesus and you think deeply about the Lord Jesus don't you get that I am filled with wonder. Not just any wonder. struck wonder. You know, it's what I do for a living. I, I, as I lead the Bible studies I lead during the week, I get to look at Jesus. As I prepare the sermon, I get to look at Jesus. I get paid to look at Jesus. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> I would pay you to do this. But Karen will need some stuff, so it's good <laughs> that, that you guys pay us. The wonder that we feel. You know, one of my illustrations, favorite illustrations about this is the Hubble telescope. have, Have you ever looked at the Hubble Deep Space Field? And the Hubble telescope can see 11 billion light years into space. 11 billion, what's a light year? Someone tell me, one of you scholars. A light year is 6 trillion miles. So, Hubble's looking out 11 billion times 6 trillion. That's some small sense. These are the fringes of his ways. As one of the Old Testament prophets said, I think Habakkuk. So we're filled with wonder, God sized wonder. His name is Jesus. And he is the most wonderful, beautiful, loving, delightful, engaging, alluring, fascinating, interesting, intelligent, trustworthy, capable, and competent and compelling person I have ever met. Any amens? We will never not be filled with wonder awestruck wonder. And the stunning reality for for us as born-again believers is that after a billion eternities, there'll still be an infinite amount of wonder to discover and enjoy. (laughs) You never get to the end of an infinite God. There's always more. There's always more awe and wonder. So, I forgot to finish my original point. Um, One year ago today, I was joyfully preaching through 2 Peter. And... uh, Chapter 3, and some of you will remember, I inserted a sermon between verses 13 and 14. Anybody happen to remember what that was? It would be impossible for you to remember, I know. But the text says, 2 Peter 3.13 says, but according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I was compelled of God, it was one year ago today, I was compelled of God to insert a sermon about heaven. Some of you may remember just to stop and look at heaven and be in awe of heaven. You're supposed to look at heaven. You're supposed to be thinking about heaven.
1: You're supposed to meditate on heaven. You're supposed to be pointing toward heaven. If you're a Christian tonight, that's who you are. That's what you do. That's how you live. I look at heaven. I don't belong here. I'm a pilgrim. I'm an exile. I'm an alien. I am passing through. I don't belong here. I'm not here to stay. I'm here to go. Amen. And that doesn't fill us with fear as it
0: does the unbeliever who has no clue about what's going to happen to him after he, he dies. The believer knows we just step into eternity. And there he is. There he is. This awesome creator, redeemer, God. Yeah, it'll be goosebumps forever. <laughs> Amen. Goosebumps. Forever. I don't often quote Peter Pan. Some of you have heard me quote Peter Pan. But he nailed it, at least as it relates to born-again lovers of Jesus. Peter Pan said to die would be an awfully big adventure. (laughs) He's right for the Christian. He has articulated what we know to be true. So I said almost all of that to say 12 months ago the Lord led me to insert a sermon about heaven into Second Peter, the Second Peter series. And this week he has led me to insert a sermon about hell into our Jude series. Last week you will have noticed, and as I read the text earlier, you will have noticed that uh, we talked about the three illustrations of God's judgment uh, that Jude talks about. God is an unbiased judge. He judges impartially and without prejudice. And we noticed those three illustrations last week. He judged the Jews who did not believe in the Exodus. He judged the fallen angels who cohabitated with human women. That's Genesis chapter 6 if you want to go research that. And He judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Gentiles of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a, a, a real clear illustration of how God is no respecter of persons. Anyone who rebels and rejects God in His Word, judgment will fall, whether you're a Jew, an angel, or a Gentile. God will judge. If we read our Bibles, we understand that the history is God has judged. We understand that God is judging, Romans chapter 1, as He gives those over to their own lusts and degrading passions and depraved mind. That's Romans chapter 1. He has judged. He is judging. He will judge in the future. Revelation 21 at the end time. So, no one can ever stand before God and say, I didn't understand that I was going to be judged. God has made it abundantly clear that all who or in rebellion against Him, will be judged. And so we come to Jude verse 7. And you heard me read the text. It's why I'm preaching the text that the Lord, or the sermon that the Lord has given me tonight. Talking about those who have rejected the Lord and His Word. He says they will undergo the punishment of eternal fire. And so this is what God has required of me tonight. To love you enough to talk about hard stuff that many churches won't talk about anymore. Um, Which is awful. I'm not sure you can call yourself a church and not fully exposit the truth of God. I'll stop there. So just as the modern church does not preach about heaven enough, certainly it goes without saying that it does not preach enough about hell. Of course, you know the fact that the modern church doesn't preach much about hell puts it at odds with its Lord because Jesus spoke about it over and over and over again. One theologian says 13% of the red words, the words of Jesus, are dealing with judgment and hell. Jesus, you got to love... The, the one thing there, obviously a myriad, myriad things. But one thing you have to love about the Word of God, one thing you have to love about the God of the Bible is He shoots straight with everybody. There's no garbage in here. There's no, tw- there's, no, there's, there's no spin in the Bible. It just is what it is. God respects us enough to just tell us what it is.
1: Right? I love that. He tells us what it is. We don't have to guess what it is. We know what it is. We know
0: what it is. As we've been saying the last three or four weeks, as we've talked about world religions, counterfeit Christianity, pseudo-clergy, false teachers, and fabricated Gospels, many are not too keen to truly hear what God has to say. We saw it in the Old Testament. The Jews told the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us in pleasant words. Prophesy illusions to us. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 9 and 10. We've also seen it in the New Testament. As the New Testament prophesied about our day, the day that we live in, God says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myth. Jesus does not deal in pleasant illusions and myths. Jesus loves and respects his hearers, and he just tells us like it is. And again, there's more about hell from his lips than any other biblical source. I think it's always important to remember that. So in a very broad stroke, Jesus was crystal clear. He says, hell, it's real. It's
1: eternal. It's terrible. It's deserved. And it is inescapable once you are
0: there. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. It's the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. And this is how Jesus talks about hell. He says it is eternal punishment. Listen, I'm not going to give you all the scripture references. If you want all the scripture references, email me. I'll send you my notes. Jesus calls it eternal fire. Jesus says... Hell is a furnace of fire. Jesus says it is an unquenchable fire. Jesus says it is a place where everyone is salted with fire. Jesus says it is a place of torment and agony with no escape. Jesus says it is a place of outer darkness. Jesus says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's seven times in the Gospels. And Jesus says it's a place where the worm does not die It's a place where the occupant will feel the omnipotent opposition of God forever. So, when people in my line of work merely seek to accurately relay what Jesus Christ Himself has said about hell, some find themselves unemployed. (laughs) Many churches, they don't want to hear this. Don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that God talks like that. I don't, want to, I don't want to know that God said that. Because I
1: can't deal with the concept of eternal conscious punishment. I can't deal with that.
0: And I'm not saying it's not an incomprehensible thing for us to consider. But it is what God has said. And so you have to decide, just like I have to decide. Do I believe the Bible or do I jettison the Bible? You can jettison the Bible if you want, but don't dare call yourself a Christian. You can jettison part of the Bible if you want, but don't dare call yourself a Christian. And again, when I talk about Christians, I'm talking about the born-again variety. I'm not talking about the cultural variety. I'm talking about the born-again variety, the doulos guys that we've been talking about the last few weeks. The doulos guys, the slaves of Jesus. The true followers of Jesus. The reaction to the horrifying description of eternal damnation that Jesus puts forth in the Gospels, many have sought to mitigate um, in two major ways. The first being annihilation. Some false teachers will... Assert that annihilation is what the Bible is actually saying. Meaning that at death or some uh, appropriate time, after some appropriate amount of time in hell, the resurrected body and soul of the damned go out of existence. Yes, you're right. That contradicts what Jesus said. (laughs) The second way that false teachers have tried to uh, mitigate the words of the Bible regarding eternal punishment. It's called universal restoration, which means that at some appropriate amount of time, after some appropriate amount of time in hell, the resurrected body and soul of the damned are ultimately redeemed. All are saved. It's a form of universalism. Yes, you're right again. That directly denies the words of Christ. The Bible does not give one bit of credible hope for annihilation or universal restoration. These are self-evidently false assertions if we're going to be biblical. Again, some denominations just make up stuff. I understand that. They just make stuff up. (laughs) They like to use the Bible sometimes, but not if it's too uncomfortable. Right? They just make stuff up. Theologians, PhDs, they just make stuff up. They just reinterpret words. Listen, as I always say to you when you come in here, words mean something. Language means
1: something. The Holy Spirit was pretty careful when He wrote the Bible. He knows what He means to say, and He says it. Now, you can be fast and loose with the Scripture if you want, but I don't want to be you on the last day. Because if you have a low view of the Word of God It tells me everything I need to know. You have a low view of God. Because everywhere in Scripture, the character and integrity of God is associated with what He has said in His Word. If you mitigate anything He said, you're mitigating who He is. Do you understand me, beloved? It's a dangerous game to play.
0: It is a dangerous game to play when we come to these really hard biblical truths, I love what Francis Chan says. He says when it's really hard and you want to make it mean something else, he says you just have to read it like a nine-year-old. It's the nine-year-old rule. What would a nine-year-old take away from, this, from the, the texts that Jesus, when He talks about hell, if the words, if we just let the words mean what the words mean, if we just let the normal rules of grammar and language apply, a nine-year-old will clearly understand what is being communicated in the Bible. Hell is real. It is a place of suffering, and it's forever. A nine-year-old will come away from the text understanding that. There'll be no question in a nine-year-old's mind what God is clearly communicating to us and to the world. It's not that the doctrine of hell is unclear. It's that men don't like it. And actually, when you read these men who write about annihilation and these men who write about universal restoration, you discover that their arguments never come from the text. They never pull their arguments from the text. Their arguments come from some subjective moral revulsion that they have about the prospect of eternal conscious punishment. I understand it's a big concept. I understand it's a weighty concept. But the thing that's important for you and me is, did God say it? Did God say it in His Word? The church has always believed it. Yes, heresies popped up as early as the first century, but the church has always believed what the Bible has to say about hell. We've been saying it the last few weeks. Biblical truth is not up for a vote. God doesn't poll test His truth before He reveals it. He just reveals it. I know that eternal conscious punishment is a difficult concept and in many ways incomprehensible to us. Even as eternal life on the other side of the spectrum is in many ways incomprehensible to us. The key thing is, did God say? That's always the key thing. And every time you come in this building, that's always the key thing. Did God say it? If God said it, I'm going to preach it to the best of my ability. We're very simple at this church. I always tell new people. I say we're very simple. We open the Bible and we preach the Bible. <laughs> we don't care about councils and creeds and, and dogma and, and popes and councils and assemblies and we don't we don't care about that. They may say some good stuff. Bravo. We don't care about that. We only care what God has to say. So some of you know in the Old Testament, uh, the doctrine of hell is not Strongly delineated, although we learn from extra-biblical sources that the Jews came to understand that the place of death, Sheol, was divided into uh, the place of paradise for the righteous and the place of punishment for the unrighteous. But as we come into the New Testament, this doctrine is anything but unclear if we simply read the red words. And we saw it here in Jude Verse 7,
1: if we simply look at this one verse, if we didn't have anything else God said, we have all we need to know. Now, I was reading one theologian this week. He says, he says, man, God is not under any obligation to repeat Himself, although He does frequently about this.
0: It's as if He doesn't want you to miss it, nor does He want I to, or me to miss it. Jude 7 says, they will undergo the punishment of eternal fire. Reality, suffering, and eternality. It's all right there in Jude verse 7. I shouldn't have to buttress this with any other texts, although God has graciously given us us many, many,
1: many texts. I'll be honest with you, I'm not aware of any other biblical truth more often attested to in the Scriptures than the fact that hell is fire. I think it's 20 times.
0: I think. If I'm misspoken, I'll let you know. And many want to try to mitigate this, the impact of this image because they say, well, that's just a metaphor. Fire is simply a metaphor. But is it not evident in common communica- communication that the thing being symbolized is, is often far greater than the symbol itself? This is just understood in, in language. And I would assert to you, as would any sound biblical scholar or theologian, or just anyone who understands the common usage of language that just because an image is metaphorical, not one iota of the horror or terror of that image is removed or diminished. In fact, the, the fact of the matter is that metaphors most often fall far short of reality. The aspect of hell's eternality is often called into question by false teachers. Just my very quick, non-exhaustive count Friday afternoon, I counted at least 12 explicit and implicit references to the everlasting nature of suffering in hell. If you want the, if you want the references, email me. I'll send you my notes. And of course, Jesus has said, you may remember from Luke chapter 16, There's a great chasm that is fixed between heaven and hell and no one can traverse it. You know the the story that Jesus was telling there in Luke 16. Nobody ever leaves hell. Nobody ever
1: leaves hell. Jesus says nobody ever leaves hell.
0: You guys have heard of Dante's Divine comedy, right? And you know the famous, the famous uh, writing above the gates of hell. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It's very biblical. There is no hope in hell. No hope. Forever there is no hope. There are at least 12 places in Scripture that I could go to make this point regarding the eternality of hell, but Matthew 25 is is in my view the best. It's a slam dunk that refutes the false teachings of annihilationism and universalism. Again, these are the red words. The words of Jesus as He talks about the last day when He as King will sit on His glorious throne and He will judge. He will separate the sheep from the goats. You remember Matthew 25 and He will judge the guilty. Jesus says to the unrepentant, Depart from Me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels." And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, we're back to the read it like a nine-year-old interpretive rule. What would a nine-year-old take away from that? Yes, the same Greek word translated eternal is used. One for eternal life, one for eternal punishment. What does the nine-year-old
1: understand? They're both eternal! It's the same word in the same sentence. You cannot mitigate that. What we believe to be true about eternal life, that it's forever and everlasting, we must come to understand is true about eternal punishment. It is everlasting. You have a problem with it? Don't talk to me. I'll counsel you all I can, but if you have an in-principle problem with this, you need to go to God and talk to Him about it. I didn't write this.
0: I didn't write it. It's God's truth. I'm supposed to preach it and you're supposed to tell it when appropriate. When it's appropriate. We are His disciples. Interestingly, if you read Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it says that eternal judgment is an elementary teaching. You are supposed to know this this is supposed to be in your theological inventory. You're supposed to know this. You're supposed to be able to talk about this to your friends and your family. As always, words and language mean what they mean regardless of how some Ph.D. tries to reinterpret them, twist them, edit them, amend them, or revise them. I, and one of my favorite Christian apologists is John Lennox. Some of you will be familiar with his name. And when he, when he refutes these uh, Darwinists and these atheists, he, uh, he says, you know, nonsense is nonsense. I don't care how many letters you have behind your name. Nonsense is nonsense. Same thing is true for those who would rewrite the Bible with respect to the eternality of hell. Another thing Jesus says about hell, he describes it as the outer darkness. Jude 13, when we get over there probably next week, Jude calls it black darkness. One theologian said it like this. This seems to imply that it will be infinitely worse than any physical, moral, mental, or spiritual darkness ever experienced here on earth. No dawns, no mornings, no ray of light, no blue sky, and where every day is black darkness. These are the words of God. Seven times in Scripture, Jesus says, hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is God saying here? Yes, weeping is going on. Um, but this is not a weeping or, or remorse and repentance toward God. That's not what this weeping is. This weeping is, I'm not sorry I sinned against a great God. I'm sorry I'm here. I'm sorry that I'm here. I hate that I'm here. It's a self-consumed, I'm feeling sorry for myself kind of weeping. Yes, it's caused by the pain I'll use biblical words, the agony and the torment of hell. But I think the deepest part of what the gnashing of teeth is all about, it's about hatred. Who does the occupant of hell hate? God. He
1: hates himself. That self-loathing that lasts forever? He hates every other occupant of hell? No one's going to have a nice conversation in
0: hell. You know, George Bernard Shaw says, well, all the interesting people are in hell. Wrong!
1: On the one hand. But secondly, even if they're interesting to you, they're not going to talk to you. They hate you! There'll not be a pleasant conversation in hell. Everybody hates everybody
0: because everybody hates God. And that hate permeates everything that happens in hell.
1: This gnashing of teeth is, I hate God! I am filled with rage against this God!
0: That's the gnashing of teeth, in my view, beloved. Hell is pure hatred. C.S. Lewis is right when he says, the damned are in one sense, successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. I've told you this many, many times. I believe this to be a very accurate description. The occupant of hell is not going to come out if the precondition for coming out is I'll bow my knee to Jesus. I'll love Jesus i worship Jesus. (laughs) They're not
1: going to come out. They're not going to come out. This is one of the fallacies that people think about when they they think about people in hell. They're not going to come out because they hate God and there's nowhere else to go. Beloved, if you hate Christ, you're not going to enjoy heaven one bit
0: because it's all about Him. (laughs) It's all about Him. It's one of the oxymorons of universal restoration. Hell is not redemptive. Hell is not redemptive. It doesn't lessen the hatred of God. As Romans chapter 1 tells us, men are God-haters. Natural man is a God-hater. It doesn't lessen that hatred. It intensifies that hatred forever and ever and ever (coughs) and ever. C.S. Lewis again, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, the believer. And those to whom God says in the end, Your will be done, the man or woman who ends up in hell. It was their choice. They didn't want God's will. They wanted their own will. It's their choice. Is God obliged to let men who hate Him into heaven? It's their choice. So in cursory and summary fashion, the Bible is crystal clear regarding hell. It is real. It is a place of agony. And it is forever. It is a place of eternal banishment, eternal separation, eternal deprivation, eternal torment, eternal distress, eternal weeping, eternal hatred, and eternal Fire. There is, I think, in the history of the church, um, a long standing misconception that the biblical doctrine of hell is designed to scare people into heaven. Um, This is false. You can't scare anybody into heaven. If they hate God, (laughs) you can't scare them into it. Their hatred is stronger than their sense of self-preservation. Heaven is a place for those who love God, not simply those who may fear hell. Fear of hell is no proof of love for God. While the Lord may certainly use the fear of hell to draw some to Himself, the doctrine of hell is not a theological scare tactic. Now I want you to listen to me very closely. I'm going to end up here. And I'm going to try to make a point that has almost fundamentally changed me this week in my view and understanding about what the Bible says about hell. A famous theologian named W. G. T. Shedd said If there were no hell revealed in Scripture we would have to deduce it. Why would do you think that would be true? That if there were no hell revealed in Scripture, we would have to reduce it, deduce it. because of what the Bible says about God. God is so awesome He's so holy, he's so good, he's so benevolent. He's a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God, a majestic, righteous reigning And what is the appropriate punishment for one who would curse this God? This God who's infinitely above us. Infinitely
1: above us. We would have to deduce it. If we're thinking people, we would say, now, if I rebel against that God, the punishment would have to be infinite. If I rebel against an infinite being, if I rebel against an eternal being, the punishment would have to be infinite and it would have to be eternal.
0: It's why I started the sermon with this wonder that the true believer has for God. This awestruck wonder. This breathtaking awe that we have for Jesus Christ. How you think about hell depends on who you're looking at. (laughs) If you're looking at yourself or you're looking at mankind, you're thinking, how in the world can this be just? If you're looking at God with great trembling,
1: It had to be this way. He's such a great God. He's such a holy God. That only eternal hell is suitable punishment for rejecting Him. For hating Him. For being indifferent to Him.
0: I came away unexpectedly this week I thought I would come away somber. And in in, in one sense, I have. But the overriding reality of what God has taught me is He is so great.
1: He is so great that
0: an eternal hell is just recompense for sinning against Him. great and then you think about this God who should have just sent me on my way to hell this God was nailed to a tree for me how much bigger does it make the gospel
1: how much bigger does it make the cross and the atonement how much bigger does it make it my point is it depends on what you're looking at and who you're looking at do you look at God and do you say what well, the Bible teaches it it must be just is that how you think or do you look at man and say, well, I don't think the Bible could be teaching that because it looks unjust. But God says it is just.
0: Will you receive the Word of God? Will you humbly receive the Word of God? The Bible is telling us that eternal conscience punishment is suitable it is fitting it is appropriate it is proper it is right and it is correct i always love what da carson said about this and i'm about done and i believe this to be 100 percent true i've said it to you many times not only will justice be done but justice will be seen to be done there will not be one person walking away from the judgment sa- seat saying that's not right That will not happen. Every mouth will be closed before this breathtakingly awesome holy God. Not only will justice be done, justice will be seen to be done. And there'll be no cross-examinations. There'll be no arguments to make. Listen, beloved, eternal hell, it's not the most outrageous doctrine in Scripture. You know what's more outrageous than that? That God saves anybody. That God has saved you.
1: It's a scandal!
0: (laughs) Go read Romans 4.
1: It's a scandal!
0: I listen to, I may go a little bit long tonight. I listen to some of these atheists on uh, YouTube sometimes, you know. I heard one of them last night say,
1: it's petty. The cross is petty. It's small minded. It's inconsequential. It probably didn't even happen.
0: (laughs) Although it's a historical fact. You know, I listen to some of these atheists sometimes, and, and, you, and you can, you, sometimes they let it show. They let the rage show. You know, it's like one guy said, he, he said one time, he said, okay, the guy's an atheist, I get it, but why is he so mad at God? Right? Why is he so worked up at God if he doesn't believe? Where's all the rage coming from? Why is all the rage pouring out? Sometimes you'll see it and you'll hear it. The most outrageous and scandalous doctrine of Scripture is that you, a sinner, will be reconciled completely, utterly, totally to a holy God. That is a scandal. But God did it through the death of His Son. God did that. It's what we've been saying in, in this series. You know, God did it. Christianity is not a world religion, it, it, it's a relationship with
1: God, and God did it. It's not something I do, it's something He did. He did it.
0: He did it. Romans 11.22, the Holy Spirit says,
1: Behold then the kindness and severity of God. God says it's right for you and it's right for me to behold the severity of God. It's right for us to do it. God says do it. God commands it. Behold my severity. And maybe you'll have some sense of what a great God I am. Maybe some small sense of how infinitely above you I am.
0: And then you'll love the cross all the more when you see God like that, beloved. You'll love the cross all the more. You'll love the cross all the more. You'll love Jesus all the more when you see this. When you see what you deserved. You know what you deserved. I know what I deserved. God commands His people to behold His severity because hell is real, hell is eternal. Hell is terrible. Hell is deserved, and hell is inescapable. Men, God means for for mankind to shudder and tremble and recoil at his infinite and omnipotent wrath in hell forever. That all thinking men will run to Jesus. And the unrepentant, as that famous 18th century theologian, Jonathan Edwards, rightly asked this question to the unrepentant. Why should you not have wrath as great as the love you have rejected? Meaning, if God has offered you infinite love and you've rejected, then you shall surely receive infinite wrath. Everything God does is infinite. Everything God does is eternal. Hebrews tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Hebrews continues, for how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I'm going to close. I'm just going to read Revelation 20, 11-15. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds And the sea gave up the dead, gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written, In the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray together. Father, you know this is big for us. You know that with our finite, fallen, sinful, carnal, temporal minds, we. It is big. But Lord, we see in the doctrine of hell, we see your greatness. Maybe some of us in here, I know I do. Maybe some of us will worship like we've never worshiped before. This is how great You are. And all that Your holiness has demanded, Your grace has supplied in the cross. So Lord, let us be truth-tellers in the world. May we speak biblical truth. May we not allow anyone around us in our circle to diminish the awful reality of hell. This is not some dogma that the church made up. These words come off the lips of God incarnate. So Lord, I pray we'd be good disciples. We'd be faithful disciples. We'd be good stewards of the truth. You are a great God. Forgive us, Father, when we think small thoughts about You. Forgive us when we've been essentially indifferent toward You for days or weeks or months. I pray we have a new appreciation for Your greatness and Your Godness and a new appreciation for our salvation in Christ. Thank You, Lord, that You speak truth to us. Thank You that You speak to us as adults. You respect and love us enough to give us the truth. Thank You, Father. We pray this In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen. Shall we sing?